Welcome to Southern New Hampshire University's Social Sciences podcast, Agents of Change. Here we invite students and professionals to chat with us on topics of inclusion and diversity, student success, and their learning experiences. In this podcast, we will hear insights and personal accounts of people who have persisted against the odds and impacted positive social change. Join us as we learn how we can all be positive agents of change. Welcome to our podcast, Agents of Change. I'm your host for this episode, Laman Tash. In this episode, we will be discussing restorative approaches and their applicability to higher education. The term restorative approach has many different meanings. It's coexistent, al- coexistence along the formal justice system or legal institutions is also widely discussed. At the same time, restorative approaches have a deep history in practices of indigenous people who have been using them for conflict resolution and community building communication for centuries. I hope that in this episode, we can demystify some of the aspects of restorative approaches and demonstrate how they can be used in higher education to create diverse and inclusive communities. Our special guest today is Sheila LeBlanc, the founder of Restorative Approach. She's our first guest from Canada, and she possesses extensive experience as a caseworker for restorative justice, an investigator with the NS Human Rights Commission, and most recently as independent restorative justice practitioner. Thank you for accepting to be here, Sheila. Thank you so much. And I'm just going to get you to do it again. I should have said it's Shyla. Shyla. I'm sorry for me. Shyla LeBlanc. Yes. Yes. I'm sorry. Shyla LeBlanc. LeBlanc. Thank you for correcting me. It's I should have good. asked it. Yeah. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's start with talking about restorative approach. What What is restorative approach? What does restorative mean? What is the essence of it? Yeah. Great question. So I often say that restorative is the same as relational. And the thing that I think is lost, especially these days, as restorative practices become more buzzworthy, is that restorative approaches, in the broadest sense, are an umbrella. They are a lens. It's a how. It's a way of being in the world, a way of seeing things, a way of operating. And within that umbrella of restorative approaches or practices, principles, whatever, the restorative model there are informal and formal applications. So informal would be things like using compassionate listening, uh, making sure that in your communications and and interactions with other people that you're focused on building trust and connection, Um, you know, asking good questions, having good quality conversations. I think self-awareness and self-reflection is a big part of being a restorative citizen. And then on the formal side of things, we do see a lot of applications that are kind of more institutionalized or bureaucratic. So restorative justice in the court system would be an amazing example. Here in Nova Scotia, in my province in Canada, we have a restorative curriculum in our school system, which is very exciting. Uh, And then there are also uh, Indigenous spaces. So here we have the Mi'kmaq Legal Support Network, which offers restorative practices and processes within the Indigenous communities. And Finally, we have folks like me who do restorative work just broadly within the community. So I consider myself a restorative practitioner, and I would certainly say we're using this lens both informally and formally uh, in the work that we do. Thank you. And you mentioned a couple of things that maybe we can talk a little bit more. One of them is 
indigenous roots of restorative practices. And this is something that may be known among practitioners, but it's not widely known that actually, even although all over the world, all over the Western world, right, these practices are used in, let's say, mainstream institutions. The roots goes back in history. So maybe you can a little bit touch upon that. Yeah, thank you so much for for naming that. And one thing that I'm increasingly troubled by is the the way that this model is expanding without adequate acknowledgement or appreciation of the Indigenous roots of this way of being. So the way that I kind of see it in terms of being a treaty person, in terms of being interested in reconciliation here in, uh, you know, Turtle Island in North America, I am always thinking about the fact that the restorative lens has existed here on this territory for time immemorial. And in fact, a lot of the current kind of settler colonial spaces that use these ways uh, have been either created entirely by or with support from Indigenous folks. And that engagement from Indigenous communities has often been in direct response to the over-representation of incarcerated folks, Indigenous folks in our carceral justice system today. So in Canada, this stat, I'm not 100% sure what it is right now, but um, give or take 30 to 40% of our federal inmates, so folks who are in cells, uh, in jail, are Indigenous in Canada, while representing only maybe 3 to 5% at most of our national population. So I think it's really important to draw the connection between this kind of systemic injustice and oppression that we're seeing, and then also the ways in which a lot of um, settler white spaces have been using these models without appreciating or acknowledging those Indigenous roots. So even for me, when I was a caseworker um, working, you know, in the formal victim offender, quote unquote, mediation uh, side of things, it wasn't uh, until, you know, two-ish years into the practice that this was even made, oh, I, that I was made aware of this connection. Uh, and so that's troubling to me that that was not something that was named and that, you know, organizationally was not something that folks took the time to do. So for me in my practice, this is something that we always, always begin with. We always start with, you know, a meaningful land acknowledgement, not just a kind of, you know, reading these basic words. We have a, an embodied way that we do that. And we make sure that we explain with anyone who enters the process, just so that, you know, this is not ours. And we're in fact, very lucky to be using it. And it's important to give thanks uh, for that. And my feeling is that it's such a helpful strategy or a way of working because it's not rooted in the same old colonial tools. It's actually something that's different, countercultural. It's a paradigm shift than our typical kind of adversarial methods. And uh, I'm grateful for that. Uh, I, you know, I strive to have good relations here with Mi'kmaq folks on my territory and just want to make sure that we do it in a good way because it's not ours. And to this point, it's not only not ours, it has a like centuries history of practice, right? It's not new. We don't like with a lot of innovations or relative innovations, right? They need to be applied and we need to see how they work. But this has been practiced actually for centuries. We know what, what's work about them or how it, it works. And maybe if you touch upon like specific ways it was applied, you mentioned in response to discrimination, but what were other ways that indigenous people were using them? That's a helpful distinction. So yes, currently in the current times, it has been kind of formalized in colonial spaces because of this injustice. So indigenous folks have kind of supported that work. But yes, and we often say it's existed for time immemorial. We say millennia. We don't even say centuries. We say time immemorial because so on my territory in Mi'kma'ki here, we know that Mi'kmaq folks have been on the land for 15,000 years. So to me, to reflect on that piece, uh, it's something that 
after years and years of thinking about it, I still find that there's something to ponder there. Just thinking about the ways in which the Mi'kmaq communities across this territory could sustain for that amount of time. You know, we are in a matter of centuries within this colonial framework running deeply, you know, into the ground. We're really unsustainable. We don't think of generations ahead. Uh, I know one Mi'kmaq teaching is to think about seven generations into the future before doing anything to the land. So um, there's really something to think about and reflect about. And I think that, again, going back to this concept of restorative equals relational, when we work relationally, when we're thinking about our interconnections, when we're mindful of the things around us, our connections to each other and the earth, it really does shift the way that we operate. It it kind of softens or soothes our tendency to be hyper individualistic and instead positions our kind of ourselves as part of a collective, as a part of the fabric of everything around us. And so to me, the the indigenous roots of this is really about caring for our relations, our bonds, and that, you know, that state of mind that we have obligations to others. So in the work that we do, we often explain the lens as starting by asking, what's the relationship to myself? And that's often one that folks jump over, but it's very important. So am I showing up into a space full of self-loathing and hatred? Am I showing up in a space where I feel at ease, where I feel inner peace, this definitely impacts our dynamics, our working relationships, our, our ways of being. Then we ask, what's my relationship to those around me? And what's my relationship to my broader community? Do I feel like I belong? Do I feel like I'm a part of this? Uh, do I feel safe here? So those are the guiding questions. And it really is that simple. So obviously, when we start to apply this and do conflict work from this model, it gets really messy really quick in terms of the details. But we really and sincerely are trying to stick to a very foundational lens, which is what is the quality of our connections to each other? And can we use the quality of our connections as the barometer of our general health in terms of how well we're doing, whether it's personally or professionally, organizationally, these guiding questions. Uh, I think if we center those when we're, you know, working, the rest will take care of itself because ultimately when we think about any project or work that we've done, it will ultimately be the quality of our connections that will determine the outcome of something. So instead of being super outcome driven, you know, deliverable oriented, we are very process oriented. We are very mindful about how we get to certain places and is it done in a good way? Is it done together? Have we run into a lot of conflict? Has there been, you know, a lot of space for difference and voices in, in the work that we're doing? And it's fascinating because what you're saying to me right now relates very well to current talks about importance of social intelligence, right? That famous Harvard study that the one factor that contributes to our happiness is the quality of our relationships. Yes. Well, before Harvard study, there were centuries long practices that actually points like everything that you said kind of matches it perfectly. Being aware of your environment, thinking about impact on relationships of everything that you do and yeah it, it kind of I, I don't know I'm sure Harvard researchers were aware of that but I feel like it all fits to that I don't know if we acknowledge it but maybe it's time to acknowledge it formally and realize you know in my practice the way that I would talk about it I think 
the restorative model, this way of orienting toward each other, toward our connections, our interconnections, is the antidote to our current social issues in terms of divisiveness, polarization, disconnection, all of these things. I do think that we are, as you're kind of saying, lacking some of those absolute basic foundational skills and tools. And this is literally, honestly, the work that I do in terms of conflict is to support people to navigate their relationships in a better way, to help people have the necessary honest conversations that should have happened a long time ago, to support people to reflect on maybe that their intention was good, but that their impact was actually harmful. And can you own that piece? So there's a lot, a lot of a very, very basic pieces that we're trying to support when it comes to using this framework. And with this, I want to ask you, because you mentioned about all this work about right people and directing people towards thinking about impact of their activities on relationships. How does it fit with a formal, because we also have this formal right processes and formal legal system. Where would those restorative practices fit into those formal practices of formal laws, regulations? So great question. So at least in my current uh, context in Nova Scotia, we actually do have some pretty, uh, I'd say, progressive integrations of restorative processes. So our current uh, justice system has a mandated restorative justice pathway that folks must uh, go through as long as they're kind of eligible for that. They have within our, our agreement our local police here have a a mandate to refer folks to that process uh, as long as it's suitable. So that's huge, right? That means that folks um, are able to resolve things in a good way before uh, escalating, going through that more adversarial litigious route. I know a lot of places uh, organizationally are trying to shift into that place. For me, in terms of the work that I do, I opened my firm very specifically because I had worked for enough time uh, that I just really recognized recognized that the vast majority of how we respond to conflict in terms of our standard traditional practices do not support resolution. So when we think about traditional investigations, when we think about HR interventions, uh, human rights complaints, grievances within unions, you know, we do a lot of work in union spaces. Uh, All of these processes tend to start out in a position of adversarial energy And while they might yield some type of outcome or a recommendation, something like that, it's incredibly rare that these processes have any space whatsoever for how to work together ahead. There's almost never that reconnection, repair, um, resolution piece. And that is so vital because so often in workplaces, people must continue to work together. And if there's a process that only orients toward having a winner or a loser, or a process that only has kind of punitive measures, if processes don't consider the voices of those impacted, if there's not a space for creative ways to come through it, to have the kind of voice and choice necessary for folks to feel satisfied, then we will continue to fight, right? And that escalation, that disconnection will go until the end of time. And we know that that happens. You know, we get called. We're the folks that come in when workplaces get into that quote unquote toxic space, often because there hasn't been an attempt to restore relationships. There hasn't been a, a, a commitment to caring for people who have been impacted and letting people navigate that. And I do think that, you know, we'll never be out of work in the sense that there is a real benefit to having 
that external person to be that support. Like we really see the value in playing this role. And interestingly enough, you know, even with my team, all of us are highly skilled in terms of being conflict facilitators. We all have certifications, a lot of experience in this and that. We all come from, you know, different lineages, but all very much frontline community, grassroots workers, even ourselves, we might have all the tools in the world, but when we ourselves personally are in conflict, we're not immune. So in my own world, I'm always a little bit disappointed in how I respond to conflict because I know better, but this is, I think, the reality of conflict. We view conflict as physiological above all else. We often know what we think and feel about conflict, but it's when we actually get into those spaces with other people where we have good intentions to have a good conversation, but things escalate, things disconnect, things break down because of that kind of emotionally dysregulated space. We're not grounded. We're not super clear. And this is what we do. We essentially just hold this gentle container. We help everybody kind of regulate and ground and settle and distill. And then we create that really structured space if the conditions are right for folks to have that necessary conversation. And it makes all the difference because we're that anchor. We're that cooling voice to, you know, press pause when we need to make sure that folks are kind of focused on what they actually want and what's important to them in that discussion. It just really helps mitigate that cycle of, of escalation that so often happens. And that reminds me also another concept that is very popular right now, emotional intelligence. You are pushing, not pushing, you're pausing to exercise that emotional intelligence in thinking about relational impact, right, of your actions. And that requires, like, as you said, just pausing and thinking, I have all the skills, I know what I'm doing. It's just like pausing and applying those skills. Yes. Yeah, no one is immune. I think when we get into conflict, when we have disconnections, our bodies react, right? We have that fight, flight, freeze, appease tendency, those shapes that we might go into in terms of trauma responses, whatever it might be. No one in the world, you know, feels stable in conflict. It escalates our systems. And so we just really try and care for that piece first and foremost before we try and open up any discussion or dialogue. And I think that really does make all the difference in the world. And if, if I understood you correctly, that also means that restorative approaches, they supplement in this case, whatever is exist, right? They're not, what are they? Like they, they cannot completely maybe replace like legal I don't know, laws, regulations, especially when it comes maybe to grave crimes uh, crimes or like grave violations of laws. But in a sense, and I'm asking you, like my understanding is in some cases they can supplement and in some cases, do they ever replace them in practice? Yeah, that's a really great question. In my practice, absolutely it can replace our formal adversarial methods. But again, we're working flexibly in the community. So within our justice system, it's an ultimately reactive offering a, a reactive option after harm has already occurred. For us, we do our best work. We find we have the best outcomes when organizations call us right as things are starting to break down. So sometimes we get the call after there have been like a tribunal or a trial or some type of formalized complaint process that unsurprisingly didn't yield helpful results, meaningful, effective results. But for us, we often advocate for early intervention. Can we try this first? And we start here Can we open the discussion and see what's here? Because I think the other thing that's lost when we don't stop and care for these moments of conflict is that it also takes away the opportunity for the person who caused harm to make it right. And a lot of times people don't intend to cause harm. I'd say it's incredibly rare that folks have malicious intentions. 
you know, 85, 90% of our work is with folks who are confused, who didn't mean to cause harm, who, you know, somehow one way or the other, some lack of understanding has created something that's kind of grown in a negative direction. So we also feel very strongly that if we give people that initial moment to, to really think about and, and get that opportunity to rise, to repair, we're often surprised. And one space that we do work in that is, I think, uh, controversial is in response to sexual harassment. And that's something that we do with great caution and care. So we take a, a much more serious uh, approach in terms of assessing how we come into that. I mean, we take all of our work very seriously, but that's a very particularly delicate and fragile scenario. So we come into those uh, settings with as much of our kind of trauma-informed lens as we can. We really, really work to move as slowly and, and carefully as we can, but we're often surprised in those cases just how much resolution we can find. Some of my most, I would say, exciting or transformative work has been in response to sexual harassment, honestly, because I think a lot of times there's even less uh, options in terms of response uh, and the existing tools are generally woefully inequipped to handle it in a way that actually, you know, supports people who are impacted victims of that kind of thing. Uh, and further, I think a lot of that harm often stems in very gigantic gaps in understanding in terms of just um, misunderstanding, ignorance, not appreciating impact. So we've seen really amazing results from, in particular, men who have caused this type of harm and feel a lot of shame. They feel really badly about it. They don't understand. And we can kind of help open those discussions in a gentle way, in a compassionate way. You know, in my work when I was doing human rights investigations, it was such a miserable place to speak very honestly. It was a miserable place to work because as soon as there was a complaint, the first conversation we had with the person who caused harm was, okay, hi, we're investigating you. You have 15 days to give us your response in writing. You know, can you imagine you're sitting there and you get that type of call or, or meeting and then you are what? Going to write in a document, yes, I did it all. It's all my fault. Like there's no way, right? So it positions people right at the get-go into a place of adversarial energy. And this is the thing that we find is if we can pause and not begin there, then we might be just so joyfully surprised at what can take place. And again, it's not always the right fit. So lots of times we assess and we say, no, this is not the right condition. Folks are not accountable and responsible. You know, that accountability responsibility piece is the very, very backbone of it. So we would never want to re-victimize someone or put someone in a, in a state that would add additional kind of harm or, or pain to conflict. But I think, again, that's where our job is so valuable is we can do that testing. We can have those difficult conversations, you know, in that confidential space, let people really speak honestly and openly about how they actually feel, what's actually going on. And from there, that will help us kind of decide what happens next. And I will say it's also a very fascinating place to work because, you know, technically speaking, I'm a consultant. And consultants show up into spaces and have all the answers. And in our process, we're the opposite. We don't know what's going to happen. We never know where things will go. Every case is different. And we simply hold that space. It's the folks involved, the people who are actually impacted and connected to this situation that will be the ones to decide. And that's why I think ultimately this process is slow. It's, it's very slow, but it's the most sustainable of them all, I would argue, because wherever we land is actually aligned and reflective of the people who are there. It's responding and flexing to that particular context, which means that case to case to case, we see 
such different outcomes. And, you know, a big, big, big piece of it is when folks feel that there's been harm, they need to have that pain acknowledged. They need to have that sincere apology. And that piece in and of itself does miracles in terms of helping people move on, in terms of helping folks let go. And you mentioned a great point, actually, speaking of it. It's, yes, it depends on case to case, right? So every case might be different, but it also requires knowledge of it, right? People need to know that they have those tools and they have these approaches. And that brings me to something that you also previously mentioned and that I think will be great uh, transition to discussing this role in higher education. You mentioned that I think in, is it in Nova Scotia, that in schools you have curriculums on restorative justice. So I was going like this, I found very interesting because it's allowing, it's formalizing restorative justice in education system. And my next question kind of bringing back to education would be, where do you, how do you think, like thinking wider about higher education system, where do you think it will be most applicable? Where would be areas where it will be most applicable? And if we can just talk about that and who can use it, how can we make it basically most use of that knowledge of that, those skills, those tools that have been proven, right, for centuries to be effective? It's a great question. So I think I would say there's two main kind of spaces that this should live. The first thing is proactively, we need to start fostering, encouraging, cultivating restorative connections within the community. So sharing circles, you know, having compassionate listening or, you know, free listening spaces, really intentionally creating opportunities for people to deeply listen to one another is one of the greatest antidotes of all. I think that this is sorely lacking uh, on a kind of macro scale. So proactively, all campuses would benefit from that. I think it would really help ease some of the isolation that students often feel. Um, I think it could really help connect uh, faculty you know, we have worked in universities and in higher education generally, it is a source of conflict. These structures in many ways, I think, perpetuate conflict. And, you know, the restorative lens views conflict as natural. And I, I really mean that word intentionally, natural. It is a part of the world. When you think about the amount of difference and variation and, you know, all of the, the different ways that we exist, of course, we bump into one another and hit each other's edges. So I think proactively, the more time that we can spend cultivating connection, offering chances for people to learn these tools, you know, a vast majority of our workshops that we do is around the concept of listening. And it's incredible. People don't listen. People don't understand how to actually hear, how to meaningfully express to someone that they've heard them. Even just having that ability to reflect back is a huge shift for a lot of folks. And then I think on the other side, the reactive side of that coin, higher ed needs to understand that restorative responses to conflict are the most, I think, useful response that you can invest in, honestly. Because again, when we begin in this place of, you know, formalized investigations, if that's the, the place that we start, you are already in a losing battle. I think it'd be very unlikely that you would find kind of meaningful repair from that place. So especially when it comes to conflict student to student, but uh, I'm thinking also, you know, in, in our work, we've seen conflict between profs and students, between profs themselves. We, one of our cases last year was within a particular university department that had kind of slowly but surely gotten into a place of strong conflict. So I think there's just immense value in responding to conflict, which will be there, especially in those institutions and in those spaces in a way that centers 
relationships that centers individual needs that allows space to repair and resolve and move forward. Because I think, you know, if we are able to navigate conflict, we will have more trust than before. And that's the thing that's often lost is, uh, and folks, it's interesting when, when people go through the process with us, there's always a lot of hesitation, which of course, you know, people don't understand what is this thing and it takes us a while to build trust. But when we come to the other side, when we see those agreements and resolutions formalized, when we see folks moving forward in those spaces, you can tell there's a strength in the relationship at that point that didn't exist before. So conflict really is an opportunity. And I think when we let people make mistakes and repair them, then I think communities can be healthier than they've ever been because it also creates a space that mitigates our current cultural obsession with perfection. You know, we're really in this moment of like cancel culture. You know, you say the wrong thing and that's it. Well, I see what forever, but that's not a very sustainable way. We need to appreciate that as humans making mistakes is part of it. We all will make mistakes. We have the, you know, right, I think, to learn and grow from those moments instead of just being punished because all of that, all that uh, does, I think in the end is creates a culture of kind of fear of hesitation of uh, unwillingness to take risk because we're just very worried about, you know, saying the wrong thing, for example. I think that's a real feeling of late. And I can think of immense benefit of it to any learning environment in general, because in learning environment, how can you learn without taking risks, right? How can you learn with cause and fear to make mistakes? So it might not be a direct like purpose, but it, it could be definitely additional benefit from that, because if people can communicate communicate in a way where there is trust and there is this uh, relational aspect, the, the learning itself would benefit from that. The learning process will be benefit from that. Absolutely. And I think it's also that that reality that when we don't engage relationally, and I know so many people just don't have intimacy, they don't have vulnerability, they're, they're not ever really in relationship, right? It might be a transaction, it might be you know, some type of interaction, but there's not that sincere um, listening, we also lose all of the other perspectives in the world. And I do feel kind of consistently this very individualistic view that I think is lacking this appreciation of the collective, that there is a we here, that we are not atoms and that what we do actually impacts others. And I see this a lot in some, you know, streams of academic rhetoric as well. And so I think that it's, yes, it creates a, a healthier learning environment for sure. I think it also supports people to uh, expand their awareness to maybe appreciate that there are entirely other perspectives. You know, one of the things that we do a lot, and it's kind of a weird, a weird place to land, but consistently we're finding, um, especially in the last couple of years, we are having to essentially explicitly educate on the concept of like multiverse on the fact that there are many, many, many perspectives and that it's actually completely the only reality is this multiverse model and that everyone is often operating in complete good faith and there's probably a lot of difference. And can we allow that non-closure to, to be the guiding principle in the sense that we don't always resolve? We can have difference and just coexist. We don't have to fix it. We don't have to fight because of it. That kind of non-closed acceptance of that disconnect and, and that willingness to zoom out and say, whoa, there's a lot of other people and pieces at play. My singular perspective is not representative of the whole and that's okay. And can I get really curious and open to meaningfully connect with folks who don't think like I think? 
this is a great point because we talked today with you a lot about like a role of restorative for conflict resolution but this adds another value it's not only for learning but it also like if you think about any any environment any community it's also community building it's also something that will help with building that sense of belonging right because you cannot belong if you don't feel accepted you cannot belong if you know that any differences will be alienated and I don't know, I might be speaking too big, but in any democratic society, multi multiverse has to be a ground because otherwise, how can we claim to be democracy? We cannot accept diversity of opinions, views of everything. And that comes from the person who grew up in non-democratic societies. So for me, it's like the essence, how we cannot have it. How can we afford not having it? I absolutely agree. And I think it's such a tender time politically, because I do think that the reality of democracy and the necessary ingredients to have true democracy, I don't know if there's enough education about that. And I think, again, there's not a practice of it. So even if folks have a theoretical appreciation of like, okay, these are the different ingredients we need, we need civic engagement, we need folks who understand their rights, folks who are able to engage in the system, etc. So, you know, all of these different factors. Sure, those things need to exist, but are we ever actually practicing it? And this is the thing that uh, is interesting because again, being in this consultant framework, I do feel very much like a black sheep often in terms of how I'm working with clients because, you know, a really common request is to come in and just present. And I'm like, no, we actually workshop. We will give folks a chance in the room today to try some listening exercises, to actually communicate with one another, to connect. And that's counterculturally even in and of itself because we love that idea of an expert coming in and just talking at us, telling us what's true. And we're trying to say, no, we're not the experts whatsoever. This isn't even ours. We're just, you know, trying to expand awareness, expand access to this way of connecting with each other. And let's try it. Let's connect. Have you spoken to the people who are beside you, who you've sat with in your organization for years and years and years? Have you ever actually had a sincere discussion or a conversation? Or have you asked a question, a sincerely curious question? Let's try it, you know? So I think that there's, as you're kind of saying, it's it's absolutely essential that we can connect for all of our society, I think. And it's also that we need to not just appreciate that we must, but we need to practice how. We need to embody it. We need to do it. It's a muscle. It's a skill set. You know, I'm not the same facilitator I was five years ago, and I won't be the same one five years from now because my skillfulness increases all the time. I'm more and more attuned to those around me. I'm more and more able to read the room. And I think I'm also more and more aware of what I don't know, which is a really good thing as well. But it's a skill set, right? It's something that we're always growing and cultivating. And we are at the time, and I think it will be great, actually, moment to wrap it up. We talked a lot about like restorative being relational and how that thinking that, that it, it actually approach, it's a thinking, right? How it can help not only with conflict resolution, but community building, building that sense of belonging and even make environment, learning environment more productive. But it's also like a skill, as you said, we all can learn that skill. We, le- we can learn to be relational. We can learn to be restorative or relational, whatever people prefer to use. And it's a it's a skill that can be cultivated skill can be learned and it's skill practicing which can benefit everybody if i summarize you correctly if i absolutely and i think it's so much our human nature you know we often say in our work connection is medicine and that's the other beauty of it is when folks start operating from this way they recognize not only that oh wow there's all of these other people around me that i haven't actually gotten to know but it also i think supports that feeling of connection belonging and also a best knowledge so i often work with leaders and i'm saying look 
have you actually checked in with anyone here? Do you actually know what's going on? So organizationally, I think it's not just that it's nice or that it feels good or that it's helpful. It's actually the key to being effective is do you have adequate communication? Do you have best knowledge? Are you on the same page? So there's just the the benefits are endless, really. And I think that um, it's really simple. It's really foundational. This is nothing fancy. It's just, can we pay attention to one another? Can we care for one another and be attuned to our interconnections, our obligations relationally? We're not atoms or islands. We are all part of this gigantic collective fabric. And so can we appreciate that and do our best to honor that as we go through our lifespan? This is a great message to finish this, re- this this episode. I think it's a great message to everybody, regardless which disciplines they are, regardless which industry they are too. It, it's applicable to so many people around the world. Thank you so much, Shaila LeBlanc. I think I pronounced it this time correctly. Thank you so much for being with us. It was, I hope a lot of people will take specific things from this conversation. But again, I believe no matter where we are and which disciplines we are, it will be, we can learn so much from applying this skill, from learning this skill to our lives. Thank you. Thank you so much for the time. It was great to be here. Love talking about it. So it was a treat. It was a treat for me too. Thank you. This is Lamantash, your host for this episode of Agents of Change. Thank you for listening to Southern New Hampshire University's Agents of Change, a social sciences podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, rate and review us, and be on the lookout for more exciting episodes. Goodbye for now.